I'm Janice Dean. I'm David Asman. I'm Dana Perino, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Thursday, February 22nd, 2024. I'm Dave Anthony. The next Republican contest is in two days in South Carolina. And another big Trump victory is expected over Nikki Haley. Where can she start winning? I think that is the question that comes Saturday night, she needs to answer. What is her path to win this nomination that she is still vying for? I'm Jessica Rosenthal. The cost of home buying has soared. And while some may wait for a rate change, others are moving out of state in order to buy. The fact that the Gen Z generation is relocating to places like West Virginia just shows you, like, they are looking for affordability. And I'm Jimmy Fallon. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. South Carolina is the next stop on the Republican road to the White House. And even though former President Trump has a big lead in the polls there, Nikki Haley tells Fox she's going to stay in the race regardless. So we're going to continue to run through the tape and do everything we can to show people that, look, you don't have to settle for Trump and Biden. We can do better. And part of her reason to keep running the legal issues that keep plaguing the former president. He's going to be in court March, April, May, and June. By his own words, he's going to be spending more time in a courtroom than he will on the campaign trail. That is not how Republicans win. Former President Trump told a Fox News town hall with Laura Ingram Tuesday nights. I don't think she knows how to get out, actually. Uh, I really don't. She did terribly in New Hampshire. She got mo- the only vote she but got she has was from Democrats. a lot of Democrats. money behind her. What do they think they're getting? Well, they're out trying of- to hurt me because of the general election. So the Democrats are giving her money and she's playing into the game. As for his legal issues, the former president again called it all election interference. We are turning into a communist country in many ways. And if you look at it, I'm the leading candidate. I got indicted. I never heard of being indicted before. I was going to. I got indicted four times. Despite all that, another big Trump victory may be looming on Saturday. Trump's lead hasn't changed essentially from the summer. It's hovered right around 20 to 30 points. I expect it to be in somewhere in that range. Matt Gorman is vice president of Targeted Victory, and he was a senior campaign advisor to Senator Tim Scott, who dropped out of the presidential race last fall. Last month on Meet the Press, she said that she would need to do better in South Carolina than she did in New Hampshire, because about 11 points. And so at some point, she needs to start winning these things. It's like the Ric Flair said, right? You want to be the man, you got to beat the man. And she needs to start beating the man. It's tough, though, even though it is her home state, and she used to be the governor of South Carolina. There are polls that say that former President Trump could somewhere get 65% or something like that in, in, in the turnout. However, Nikki Haley does have one benefit that she also had in New Hampshire. In South Carolina, voters are just registered voters, not by party. In the Democratic primary three weeks ago, only 4% of registered voters showed up. Of course, President Biden had an easy win. But that means that there are Democrats who didn't vote then who can vote on Saturday. Do you think that could give her a boost bigger than we think? It can. Uh, You know, I think getting Democrats to vote in a Republican primary is always a challenge. Now, there's been ever since she left the governor's mansion, about 600,000 new voters have come into the state, a lot of them around COVID. And a lot of those folks, they're higher income, have a college degree or above. So they're prime for possibly, you know, Nikki to pick off here if she can narrow that margin. Again, The expectation is, you know, 20 to 30 points. If she could shrink that margin and, you know, she could sell the narrative that she's closing the gap. 
Um, but that's on her to be able to do that. And we'll see, I guess, on Saturday night if she's able to do it. She has said, regardless of what happens Saturday, she's going to wake up Sunday still running for president. We have Michigan with a combination of caucuses and a primary coming up next week. Then we have Super Tuesday on March 5th. There's like 16 contests that day. Why wouldn't she wait and keep going? You know, one thing which most folks who are in her position, right, should they be lacking for money? Nikki clearly is not. She has the infrastructure and the money to run these races in across the Super Tuesday states. Um, and so now it's a sprint to get to, you're right, March 5th and the state's there. And you can kind of keep continuing to run. It's a matter of, again, pointing out what her path is. Some of these contests will not be winner take all. So she will get some delegates in some of these contests. So she will still be racking up some. But by the middle, I think even by the end of March, former President Trump actually could get just about the threshold to, to take the nomination, right? He could. He could. And especially some of these states, say for California, if you hit a certain threshold, then it becomes winner take all. And, you know, the Trump campaign has been using, you know, the last couple of years to work in some of these state parties, change the rules to, in his mind, make it easier if he hits a certain number to get delegates and get them quicker. Now, she told the Associated Press, Nikki Haley said, I mean, this isn't Russia. We don't want someone to go in and get just 99 percent of the vote. What's the rush? Why is everybody so panicked about me having to get out of this race? Is she right? She has every right to run. And and, and look, um, she has objectively overperformed her campaign, right? I mean, look, I can speak from experience here. I think Tim Scott probably got more buzz when he entered the race. He dropped out last fall. Nikki Haley's still in. You got to give her credit. She has outperformed expectations and she's run a good race. But she has every right to be in the race. But again, if she has is claiming that she's running for kind of the Republican nomination, what's the path? Where can she start winning? I think that is the question that comes Saturday night, she needs to answer. What is her path to win this nomination that she is still vying for? Because at some point, like I said, you got to start winning these things. Okay. You referenced Tim Scott. You were a senior advisor. How does it happen? How does it go? When things you've for months you're running, you go through these debates, you're just hoping and hoping, but you say, I can't do it anymore. What was the decision process for him? You know, I think he recognized that there wasn't a path anymore but to where he it was needed. still months before there was any voting. You're right. And, and, and I think what he kind of laid out was that the path just simply wasn't there. And he saw that early on. And I think sometimes we underestimate there's a human side of this, right? Whether you're Nikki Haley or Tim Scott or, or anybody, right? This is an all-encompassing endeavor, right? This takes over every single facet of your life, and, and it should. It's it's an important job, and it's an important thing to do is run for president. And suddenly hitting stop is like you're going 60 miles an hour on the highway and then just shifting into park. It's not easy to do, and it's jostling, you know? And so there's a human aspect of this. It often takes a little bit of time for people to process, you know, that, you know what, maybe this isn't going to work this time, that, you know, this isn't my time. And I think what he saw, he was able to see that uh, where things were looking last fall. He made a decision. and It's a deeply personal decision. Former President Trump gets asked all the time about running mates, possible people. He's talked about people who were in the race. Tim Scott's name gets talked about a lot. He's certainly like almost a surrogate out there for the former president. Do you think that he would take that position? Do you think he you wants know, I, it? 
look, I have no inside info I, on that. I have, he loves being South Carolina senator. But, you know, him and Trump do get along very, very well. They work together a lot. He'd be a fantastic choice. But, you know, of course, I wanted his name at the top of the ticket. That's sure. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so but he'd be yeah. like, any, any way that Tim Scott can serve this country, South Carolina senator or anything else. I think he he's done a fantastic job. And I think he'd be a great, great uh, addition. All right. So when I ask that, that's presuming that the former president becomes the nominee. I wanted to bring up, obviously, one of the frustrations, I'm sure, for, for Senator Scott and the other Republicans running, that former President Trump refused to debate. And there was no Trump participation in any of that. But Tuesday night, when he was at the Fox town hall with Laura Ingram, he brought up debating President Biden. When you have the final Republican, the final Democrat, you have the two people you have to debate regardless of how many debates would you commit to as many as necessary. I would like to do it starting now. I don't think he's going to debate, though. I really don't think so. Do you see a scenario where that's possible? President Biden and, and, and former President Trump do not debate this fall. Do you think that's possible? I think it's certainly possible. I mean, look at Joe Biden at the press conference after the her report was issued a couple weeks ago. I mean, would you trust that guy to be on there for 90 minutes, one on one? You know, no holds barred, no staff, no, you know, notes, no nothing. Uh, that, as, a, as a staffer, even though I'm not a Democrat, I would have a hard time putting my boss out there if, if, if that was Joe Biden. But it's the uh, it's it's, it's yeah. tradition. Oh. I mean, everybody's done it. I know Reagan and Carter almost didn't, but they did finally once in 1980. But, you know, dating back to television, it's it's been a tradition. Joe Biden owes it to the American people to debate, you know, um, but. 90 minutes up there, the way, you know, you, we saw him in the past. Good luck. Do you think that they would spin it in the way that, look, we don't want to give former President Trump a platform to spew misinformation and lies and campaign 2020 things? I mean, do you think they would try to spin it that way and that would be their reasoning to not debate? Yeah, I think what they would do is they don't want to be seen as not wanting to debate. Sure, so they don't they want to would, say, our guy's old, we can't debate. Yeah. They're not going to say that. So, no, they, I think they would put some ridiculous and onerous things on there being, okay, well, we need a live fact checker. We need somebody to interrupt President Trump when he, you know, quote unquote lies that does this and that and make it so that way it's the man's are ridiculous where it wouldn't make any sense. They, they they so that they can't be the ones to pull out what they would they would just throw a bunch of ridiculous demands in there to make it seem like oh we tried but you know we didn't want you know somebody to jump out and you know fact check Trump every time he said something you know that was debatable they, they, I think they they'll do something like that if they really don't want to debate now the one thing that we haven't really discussed much is is you know the Trump legal issues he does have these looming trials we have no idea how many of them may actually take place before the election or not. Having Nikki Haley stay in the race as a safety net, other candidates who dropped out really just suspended. I mean, if, if something happened, she wouldn't necessarily be the only option, right? No. And I think that's why it's important for her to really solidify herself as, as starting to win some of these things. So she can kind of claim, you know, that, that she is not just running, but she's running and, and closing the gap or running and winning. And, you know, look. Uh, that's a that's a quite a hypothetical and i think you know there's a lot of time between then and now i think look realistically trump we're entering a phase of this campaign where we're going to be for a little while where trump is going to be on the campaign trail or in and around a courtroom for a little bit and how he managed to get it manages to get a message out that resonates with voters and is about them is going to be really, really key. He needs to keep the focus on what they're worried about, inflation, the border, et cetera. Um, and, you know, look, the first one coming up, the Alvin Bragg case, um, 
the, the quote unquote hush money case in New York, yeah, uh, in New York at the end of March. That is, I think, what many in our party view as the weakest and the weirdest case. And it's the one that most Republicans feel comfortable defending on its merits. So that is one I think I would not be surprised to see most Republicans rally around him on and do it quite easily. Um, the other ones we'll see, but I think it's incumbent upon Trump to make sure as he goes to navigate these cases that the focus is continually on the voters and their issues and what they care about. Matt Gorman, vice president at Targeted Victory former senior advisor for the Tim Scott presidential campaign. Thank you so much for joining us, Matt. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. I'm Emily Campagno, host of the Fox True Crime podcast. In 1996, 19-year-old co-ed Kristen Smart went missing after attending a college party over Memorial Day weekend at Cal Poly. Over the course of two decades, a search for answers ensued. This week, I'm joined by retired San Luis Obispo County Sheriff's Detective Clint Cole as he reflects on his time as lead investigator with the case. Available now on Apple, Spotify, and foxnewspodcasts.com. This is Jimmy Fallon with your Fox News commentary coming up. The median home price in the first quarter of 2020 was $329,000, according to the St. Louis Fed. Now it's 417000 In 2020, mortgage rates were about 3.1%. This week, they're at 7.1%, up a bit from last week. The cost of buying a home skyrocketed during the pandemic, and the Fed raised rates to deal with out-of-control inflation. Uh, currently, the interest rates and house prices are just insane. Liz and her husband, Jared, own property in Northwest Colorado. We're, we're, we would love to upgrade from where we're at, but we just we can't. While they already live in a rural area and want animals and more land, they told Fox Business everyone wants that now. I think with COVID, there was this this push of um, let's get some space. Let's get um, space from our neighbors, make sure that we have um, a safe place to be. And now everyone wants to be in that rural safe space and it's become a commodity. Land has become a commodity. This woman told Fox Business she and her fiance own a home in Talmadge, Ohio, which, while affordable a few years ago, she says has also gone up in price. We have a couple friends looking for houses right now, and it's just not affordable right now. So what are they doing, renting? They are renting. They're living at home with their parents or they're living with in-laws. And shelter costs generally have increased pretty dramatically, with rents now roughly 29.5% higher than they were before the pandemic, according to Zillow. However, it's been cheaper to rent than buy. A recent Lending Tree report concluded that looking at 2022 median prices, renters came out ahead over homeowners by over $500 a month. We're covering everything in the real estate market, you know, from interest rates to inventory. What do we, ex- we expect in 2024? Katrina Campins is host of Mansion Global on Fox Business and is hosting a series of reports this week on FBN called Hitting Home, Rebuilding the Dream. Uh, Staging, you know, how to get your property ready to list. So there's so many different aspects of it. And I've been in the real estate industry now for 22 years. I don't want to age myself, but it's been 22 (laughs) years. And so I've seen the industry, the highs, the lows. And this market is just drastically different than anything I've ever ever experienced before because we have such low inventory, right? We have three point two months of supply and a healthy market is six months of supply and that's driving prices up. 
So people ask, well, when rates go down, is more inventory going to enter the market? And the answer is yes, more inventory is going to enter the market, but still prices are going to continue to rise. And I think that's a big misconception that people have is that more inventory will come into the market and prices will go down. And if we look at the data, right, in the past three years, real estate has appreciated 29.7%. In the past year, it's appreciated 2.4%. And I say the, the, and I, pinpoint the last year as well, because people think that real estate has not gone up, even though it's been kind of like a stalemate market, but it has. So Mm -hmm. it's continued to be really an asset that provides generational wealth. It continues to appreciate. The question is, at what rate of appreciation will that continue? That's interesting, right? Because yeah, you're right. Everybody thinks it's rates. Let's blame the rates, but it's both. And housing prices are, are have gone up as well, is what you're essentially saying. Um, yeah, it's it's the rates, and it's also we have very low supply in the marketplace, yeah. and new construction has been driving the market in the past year because a lot of existing home owners have a two, three, four percent interest rate, so they're locked into the home. So why are they going to sell, right? So what's been driving the market is new construction. Builders have a lot in the pipeline. So all that will be delivered, you know, hopefully between 2024 and 2025. But still, there's such a lack of inventory, which is why we presented this chart. Because, I, you know, the more I spoke about it, I said, let's put a graph together so that they can understand just how low the inventory is. And that's one of the main drivers for prices and, you know, and rates, obviously, as well. So there's just so the dynamic is really interesting mm. this time around. And, you know, I, I, I hope that it will get better, um, but I think it's going to be slow. Let's say rates come down uh, below what, 6%, 5%. Is that is that going to get things moving? Like at what point do people start putting their homes back on the market in sort of a bigger way? Like when do we start to see movement that you think is responding specifically to rates? Well, I think that we're going to see a rate cut in May. I don't anticipate that it's going to happen in March. You know, I think initially we were, we were expecting to see that. So I think the first rate cut will happen in May. And what was interesting is even when the Fed said in 2023, late in 2023, that they were going to get aggressive in 2024 with rate cuts, you saw movement in the market. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, sellers got excited, right? And buyers got excited and people entered the market, more inventory came on the market, and you saw more pending sales. But then at the beginning of 2024, what happened was is that the Fed started giving mixed signals and saying, well, we're not going to be as aggressive as we had initially anticipated. And then all of a sudden, the brakes are back on. So there's so much uncertainty in the market. But I do think that this year after the first rate cut, maybe the second, you're going to begin to start seeing you know, more inventory trickle down because there's also a lot of like empty nesters which have this huge house. They don't need it, mm. but it's more expensive for them to downgrade. And then you have people that are growing, you know, their family's growing, but they just don't have options when it comes to homes. So I do anticipate that we're going to have more inventory. And I think it's going to happen, you know, at the beginning of the summer, maybe late spring. And then I think there's going to be a pause in August, September, as the election news continues (laughs) to get ramped up, because then there's more uncertainty, right? Which is the norm um, during an election year. That makes sense. To the to the point about inventory, and and we're talking about um, the need to build. Right? We've been hearing about the need yeah. to build in this country for, uh, gosh, it, it feels like decades now. Um, but d- it, talk to me a little bit about how important it is 
to talk about the location of where we build. Like you need to be, mm-hmm. you need to build where people want to be, right? And that can be hard to do, especially in places that are already filled in. You need also housing that's affordable. It's not all luxury. I'm from Los Angeles, and that seems to be like anytime you see new construction, it's like, oh, these are going to be luxury units, and it's like, well, most people can't afford that. So what what talks me about this need to build more and sort of the uh, I guess the categorizations or the considerations you need to make when you build. You bring up such a valid point. Affordability is at an all-time low, right? Um, And what we really need is affordable housing. But the problem is, and this is something that I I speak to, and given everything that's happening in New York City right now um, with Trump, I don't think it's going to help, is, you know, affordable housing is something that is absolutely necessary across the nation. But you do need it also more so in certain places, like New York being one of them. And builders are not really incentivized too much, depending on the state, right, but to build affordable housing. So I've always been a proponent in my mind to incentivize builders by giving them more tax incentives, um, less red Mm. tape, less costs, right? Like give them motivation to actually want to build affordable housing because they're in the business to make money. And that's what we need as opposed to everyone goes towards the luxury market because they think that that's where most of the money is. But I actually, I mean, and, and as a bargain shopper myself, like I cover luxury, right? I cover homes on Mansion Global. I've been in the luxury real estate market for so long. But I just did a segment about this earlier with uh, Neil Cavuto is, listen, you can get your place staged professionally, yes, and you can spend money and it will you'll get the return on investment. But you could also go to Home Goods, TJ Maxx, and all these places. Um, and my family teases me, but like I love a good bargain. Like I something about it just gets me excited. And I feel the same way about affordable housing and about just housing in general. Like everything doesn't need to be over the top luxurious. You could have a nice place, it could be priced well, and you could get a lot for your money and value. And I feel like that's where builders need to be building is to that demographic, right? Where they may not necessarily have a huge down payment. They may not necessarily even own a home. So they may not be able to roll over equity from another property, right? But that's like, that's what's necessary. And so the question yeah. becomes, how do developers and builders get incentivized to do that? Okay, just a couple more for you. Um, yeah. to, to that To this point about the willingness, there's this report that some of Gen Z is moving to West Virginia. Um, This Hire a Helper study found that the state had the highest net gain of Gen Z moves. This is considered one of the poorest states in the United States, but is that the point? You know, buy where you can afford, especially if you can work remotely. And I think that is the point. The fact that the Gen Z generation is relocating to places like West Virginia just shows you like they are looking for affordability. And it's impossible to find that in certain locations. I mean, I'm from Miami. Miami's gotten so expensive. Um, you know, Tampa's expensive. Like, so people are just, they're looking. And then what I find with the Gen Z is that home, like they realize, okay, it all starts at home. Like, I think they actually have the right idea in mind is I need to get my home life figured out. And then I can put roots down and everything else will fall into place. And so their philosophy and their way of thinking to me is it reminds me of the older generation. You know, mm-hmm. it's almost like it skipped a generation. Um, and so it doesn't surprise me that West like a lot of them are moving or relocating to West Virginia and places where they can get land. Katrina, we know that you are going to be on a construction site today. So mm-hmm. tell us, um, you know, about the construction industry, I guess, briefly before we let you go. Yeah. Um, uh, I guess 
construction is all about location as well. Um, but, but materials, the cost to build, mm-hmm. that's also gone up. Um, y- you know, that's skyrocketed along with inflation as well. The supply chain issues during COVID, I don't know if you remember those, but the supply chain issues, like they were real. And I remember the cost of wood. I remember trying to build a dock and the cost of wood was literally like seven times what it was before COVID. And I just could not believe it. And the supply chain issues, you know, have gotten a bit better, but I feel like with inflation, some of them are just still up there. So the cost to renovate your kitchen or your bathrooms literally will never be the same as it was before COVID in my mind. And that affects a builder's ability to make profit, right? So they're going to ultimately roll that back into the buyer, which again, starts the conversation or continues the conversation as to like why real estate is so expensive. New construction has been driving the market in the past year and builders need to continue to build. But at some point they paused because interest rates were higher. So they knew that they were going to have to provide certain incentives to be able to get buyers off the fence. And they did that. Um, As far as new construction, though, I think the new construction um, is going to continue to be a main factor in 2024. And builders are very bullish about building, Hmm. um, especially with interest rates coming down. So, But supply chain issues are an issue. Everything's so expensive. Drywall is expensive. Concrete's expensive. Wood's expensive. Like everything, you know. And I grew up with my, you know, my late father, he owned a construction company. So I grew up on construction sites. So I literally have seen... Uh, and interestingly enough, I got into real estate maybe subliminally be- because of that, but nothing to do um, with that. But literally, I've grown up watching construction, and I'm just, I'm just shocked at how expensive everything is now. Katrina Campins, um, thanks so much for joining. Thanks for having me. Meet the American who developed a safer way for travelers to fly. Archie Lee, who was born in 1907 in Poplar Bluff, Missouri, and always seemed to have a fascination for flight. After spending his 20s as a daredevil pilot, Archie became an aircraft director at Lambert Field in St. Louis, just three hours outside his hometown. He was originally hired to help fix the burdening issue of crowded runways when one stormy night, Archie would unknowingly change the trajectory of aircraft control forever. Through unrelenting fog and dire weather conditions, he calmly directed a pilot flying a small biplane to safely land with merely two flags, indicating red for hold and checkered for go. The National Air Traffic Controllers Association declared that this was the first time in history that a worker guided a plane from the ground. They say his efforts laid the foundation for the role of air traffic controllers as unsung heroes of the sky. Archie became the nation's first air traffic controller and continued to pioneer new technological improvements to make air travel safer, which millions of people depend on to this day. After attending Washington University and earning a degree in aeronautical engineering, he joined the Federal Bureau of Air Commerce, which is now named the Federal Aviation Administration. With his expertise, he was called to serve as a pilot for the United States Air Force, where he battled Japanese air fleets in World War II. In 1965, he returned to civilian life and became the director of air traffic control for the FAA and remained a prominent leader of the flight industry. Archie retired eight years later and passed away in October of 1986 in Annandale, Virginia, at the age of 79. Archie League's brave ingenuity carved the path for modern aviation, which ensures safe air travel today.
The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox & Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Jimmy Fallon. What's on your mind? So here's one you might have missed. While the world was fighting over Trump's court cases and Biden's dementia, environmental regulators in Colorado have approved a measure to crack down on the use of gas-powered lawnmowers. Now, I'll admit, it's nice to see the people of Colorado cutting the grass instead of smoking it. But the forecast for this climate crusade is cloudy with a chance of stupid. For one, nobody has any data anywhere that says we can save the world by sending John Deere a Dear John letter. And two, even if you switch to an electric mower, you still got to plug that into the power grid, which is ultimately powered on fossil fuels. You see, that's the big scam about electric devices. They don't run on wind or rain or even solar energy. And that's a good thing, because despite what you were told in the movie Annie, the sun will not always come out tomorrow. Yeah, Annie was a good singer, but she was a terrible meteorologist. But nobody's worse than these buzz-killing bureaucrats who keep trying to run our lives. They tell you what kind of car you can drive, what kind of stove you can use, the light bulbs you screw in, the hot water heater you turn on. It's amazing that when it comes to issues like abortion, liberals always tell us the government needs to stay out of our bedrooms. Yet they've got the government in every room of my house with climate change, and now they're headed out towards the shed. Don't get me wrong. I am all for lowering emissions, which is why I'm telling these bossy bureaucrats to shut their mouths. Personally, I'd rather listen to a leaf blower, provided it was gas-powered, of course. You can listen to Fox Across America with me, Jimmy Fallon, weekdays from noon to 3 on the Fox News app and foxacrossamerica.com. And don't forget to check out my all-new TV show, Fox News Saturday Night with Jimmy Fallon, 10 p.m. Eastern on the Fox News Channel, and buy my book, The Cancel Culture Dictionary. It's a New York Times bestseller. I'm the only community college graduate to crack that list, so let's all celebrate right now at foxnewsbooks.com. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com.